Well, let's continue in worship. If you have scripture, go ahead and pull it out. Let's go to Matthew 21. So again, uh, I didn't introduce myself. If we haven't met before, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And so it's my privilege this morning to lead us in our time in God's word. And so that's where we're going to be is Matthew 21. And as we turn there, as you turn there in scripture, we're going to start with a little poll. And so first, I'm going to ask the fellows to answer this question. Raise your hand, fellows, if you, if I were to say the term nesting. Men, raise your hand if you know what I mean when I say nesting. I've got one, two, three. Okay, the rest of you are honest. Now, ladies, if I were to use the term nesting, how many of you would know what I mean by nesting? Men, okay. All right, there we go. So, fellas, a little education for you all. Nesting is not a term for what gorillas do uh, on Animal Planet. Nesting is actually a little, a little food for thought for you here. Nesting is this really odd thing that happens during pregnancy where uh, women in anticipation of, and all the, all the women are looking at me cautiously with skepticism, like, Ryan, tread lightly. So, ne- forgive my ignorance, ladies, but from my understanding, nesting is when women are anticipating the arrival of the baby, they will begin to want to create a space to welcome that baby into. So maybe it's a nursery or maybe it's a part of your bedroom, but they begin to get excited about the baby coming. And so they want to have a place, a little, a little nest, so to speak, for the baby to come. And I learned about this, me and my three brothers in the room who know, when Taylor and I were first expecting, this is Carson eight years ago, we were living in a two-bedroom apartment up in Brea. And so we decided that the spare bedroom was going to be Carson's uh, nursery. And so, men, we don't nest. Like, we don't even think about the baby, probably, until we're heading to the hospital. That's just kind of how most of us think. But women are thinking about this ahead of time. And so, Taylor, if you know my wife, also, if you give her any opportunity to uh, decorate or design a space, like, that's her heart's joy. And so, she was carving out this nursery space for Carson. And our theme was owls. And so I just remember like everything in life at this point was all about owls. And Taylor took care of everything for the nursery and for the nesting. Like, thank goodness I had no part in that. I had one part. I had one task as a husband. And my job was to hang up this big old owl picture because Taylor physically couldn't do it. So she needed me to hang this thing on the wall. And so she kept kindly asking me, hey, Ryan, I need you to hang this up. I'm not asking you to do anything else for this process. Just hang up this owl picture frame. And here's the thing, you guys. I know this is an important story because I asked her this week in anticipation of the sermon, hey, has there been, husband's a foolish move, has there been any time where I just haven't listened to you in like the history of our marriage? And like, Without missing a beat before I even finish the question, she's like, eight years ago when we were doing the nursery. So clearly, like, this is hanging on my wife's heart. And so eight years ago, she said, Ryan, you, I just need you to hang this owl picture up on the wall. And I was like, yeah, baby, it takes like five minutes. I got this. No problem. Five minutes. Too easy. I'll get to it sometime soon. I promise you. Before the baby comes, that owl thing is going to be on the wall. And so time after time, husbands, you know what I'm talking about, like the, the, 
the politeness of the asking begins to shift a little bit more as your wife loses confidence in your ability to follow through on the promises that you've made. And so pretty soon after probably asking me a dozen times, and I still had not hung this thinking picture up, I remember I was sitting in the living room of our apartment watching TV, right? I was a phenomenal husband at this point in life. And I'm sitting there watching TV, and then, guys, you know what happens. I hear from the nursery behind me, I hear the hammer start to hit the wall. And as a husband, I knew those were like nails in my own coffin as I heard that sound. And like an Olympic runner, I shot up off the couch, and I go running into the room like, baby, I was just going to get to that. And it was too late. It was no good. My eight-month pregnant wife is up on the ladder hanging this picture, huffing and puffing, not in the happy way at me. And I knew right in that moment that all of my empty promises meant nothing to her at that point in time. And this has biblical value, not just in my foolishness as a husband, but as we look at Matthew 21, we're going to engage with one of the parables of Jesus. And in this parable, Jesus is talking about how oftentimes in our faith, we're prone to giving God empty promises. And just like I learned eight years ago and still remember to this day, the effect that empty promises have, we're going to look at this parable and and each of us is going to have the opportunity to sit with Jesus this morning and just kind of talk with him about where in our faith, where in our lives, we maybe have been making empty promises to him. And how we as people who want to live rightly in response to his word, how we need to follow through on the, on the things that we feel the Lord is leading us to do. And so with that, we look at Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 32. And so I'll read and you guys can follow along. So verse 28 says this. Jesus says, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. Now he went to the first son and he said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Now, which of these two did what his father wanted? Well, the first, they answered. And Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, still you did not repent and believe him. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word. Lord, that there are many times where your word is challenging to us, where it it calls us out in ways that we have been living inconsistently. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that as we engage with you in your scriptures, I pray, Lord, that that your spirit would begin speaking to us, that, that in a way that only you can do, that you would convict us, that you would challenge us, and that you would spur us on to be obedient to your word, that we would be people who don't just say we will do things, Lord, but who follow through on those commitments, on those, on those ways that we respond in obedience to you and to your teachings. So, Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the gift of your presence with us today. And it's for your glory, Lord, that we pray all these things in your name. Amen. And so we're uh, diving into Matthew 21. And in order, like we always do, in order to get a good understanding of what we're engaging with in Scripture, it's always helpful to know the context of what it is that has caused Jesus to say what he's saying. 
And so in order for us to understand this, we have to start at the beginning of Matthew 21 itself. And so at the beginning of Matthew 21 is where Jesus enters Jerusalem. And so he comes into the city, and this is what we commemorate and celebrate on Palm Sunday, which is the Sunday before Easter. It's where Jesus enters Jerusalem in a triumphant way, and all the people are celebrating his arrival. They welcome him as a king. They, they kind of roll out the red carpet, and they welcome him. They, they shout praises to him, and then Jesus enters the city. And yet, the first thing he does is he goes to the temple. And so in Matthew 21, starting off in verses 12 through 17, he goes to the temple. Now, he goes to the temple because he's visiting the heart of worship. Like, the temple is where Jewish people, they gathered for worship. They gathered to live out their testimony of faith. And so Jesus goes to the temple, and in verses 12 through 17, we see that when he gets there, he's displeased. He's furious when he comes to the temple. And the reason is, and and he goes into the court of the Gentiles, and the court of the Gentiles is the place of the temple where if you weren't Jewish, you could still go and participate in worship of, of Yahweh. You could participate in worship of the Lord. So it was designed to be a kind of a missional place where those who were outside of God's people could come and worship Him and kind of be drawn into that community. And so Jesus comes to the court of the Gentiles, and He finds that His people had filled the place with booths selling sacrifices. And so Jesus comes in, and He starts flipping over these tables, and He makes a cord of a whip, and He starts driving people out of the court of Gentiles, and He's angry. Right? You can imagine on Sunday, if Jesus were out there just flipping over the donut wall and pushing the coffee cart over, and you'd be freaked out. You'd be like, dude, why is this guy going, going crazy? Like, did Ed run out of black rifle coffee out there or what? And Jesus isn't upset because of, of preference. He's not upset about superficial things. He's upset because his people have lost their way in worship that that was supposed to be a place where, where they would welcome outsiders in to know and experience God. And yet they filled it up with profiteering and commercialization to make money off of worship. And so Jesus comes and he judges the worship of his people in the temple. And then he leaves. And then the next day he's returning back into the city. And later on in verses 18 through 22, as he's coming back into the city... It's, it's early morning, it says, and he's coming in, and he's hungry. He wants breakfast. And he passes a fig tree on the road into Jerusalem. And he goes over to the fig tree, hoping to get some breakfast. And he comes to the tree, and there's, there's no fruit on the tree. And Jesus, again, just gets angry. And then he curses the tree and says, may you never bear fruit again. And the tree just literally just dies and wilts upon the words of Jesus. And, and everybody's looking at this, and again, you kind of wonder, like, man, why is, is, why is Jesus so hangry? Like, he goes over the tree looking for breakfast, and it's not there, and he curses it. And again, Jesus is not angry for no reason, but the tree is a metaphor for his people. That he's come to his people looking for fruit, and he finds none. Just like he comes into Jerusalem And he's looking for fruit, and he finds none. And so the tree is a metaphor for his people where he's condemned it. He's judged it and said, I came to you looking for fruit, fruit of righteousness, and there's nothing here. 
And so I condemn it. And then he goes into the city. And he goes into the temple and he starts to teach in the temple courts. And as he's teaching, again condemning the religious leadership of his day, finally the religious leaders step up. And they're like, hey, hey man, ever since you've come in here, you've done nothing but judge the way that we run things. You've done nothing but judge the way that we live out worship. And so finally they just call, they, they try to call Jesus out in the midst of the assembly. They're like, who, who gave you the authority to judge us? This, this wandering preacher coming out from Galilee, the boondocks, now you come into the big city and you start condemning the way that we lead God's people in worship. Like, who, on whose authority do you, do you come? And then Jesus gives them kind of a riddle that they don't want to answer. And so Jesus says, hey, you can't answer, so I'm not going to answer your question either. And he enters in now to two parables. And it's our parable that we're looking at this morning, and then the parable of the tenants. And the theme in both of these parables is the same. It's where God's people have rejected the Son. And because they've rejected the Son, there's consequences. And the landscape, the religious landscape of Israel has now shifted. And like we see in our parable, now Jesus is talking about, hey, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom now. And you've got to imagine being the religious leadership of that day. So first of all, you come in here, you start flipping over donut walls, and now you're going to come in here and tell me that prostitutes are going to enter the Father's kingdom? And Jesus is like, yes, not only are they entering, but they're entering and you're not. And you can imagine the way that these guys' world has been turned upside down. But there's a specific reason that Jesus brings to them. And the reason is this, as we look at the parable, this, the first layer of interpretation of meaning that Jesus is bringing to them is this. You're not obeying the Father. The Father says, trust in the Son. Put your faith in me, the Son, and then you may enter the kingdom. And Jesus says, hey, you guys have not obeyed the Father. You say you'll obey the Father, like the second son. You say you'll do it, and now here I am. The Father says to trust me, and you're like, no, I'm not going to follow that guy. And Jesus says, hey, you're just like the second son. You make all these promises about how you're going to follow and honor God and do what he says, and now he says to trust me, and you say no. And so Jesus says, because you've chosen not to do that, you will not enter the kingdom. And yet, to your, to your shame, you should have understood this. You should have obeyed. And now look at this. People who at first said no to God, people who at first said, I don't want to have anything to do with him. I'm going to go and live my way, i.e. tax collectors, this broad group of sinners and prostitutes. Now, all of a sudden, they see Jesus and they're like, yes, I hunger for that. And so I'm going to put my faith in him. And Jesus says, they're like the first son. At first they said, no, they want to do their own thing, but now they see the life of the Son, and they're like, I want that. And so I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to change my heart. I'm going to repent, and then they pursue him. And Jesus says, that's like the first Son. They may have wandered at first, but now they have changed. Now they've shown that they're going to follow through and obey. And he says, because of that, 
they're coming into the kingdom, and you who say you obey, you're not coming in. And so when we look at that, that, and obviously at the end of chapter 21, you see when all the teachers gather together, like, okay, how are we going to kill this guy? Like, it's one thing to come in and flip tables over. It's another thing to be cursing trees and saying that we're doing a bad job. But now he's going to tell us that prostitutes are coming into the kingdom. And I'm not? Like, no way. No way. So now we need a scheme about how we're going to get rid of this guy. And so that's where we find the context, where Jesus is coming in. He's got some harsh words for these people who have made empty promises and yet don't trust in the Son. So there's that first level of meaning. And yet for this morning, what we're going to be looking at is a, a, is a secondary layer of meaning there. And it's what we talked about earlier. It's about, man, are we the kind of people who, just like the religious leadership, yeah, maybe, maybe we've chosen to put our faith in Jesus, but just like these guys, we make empty promises to God all the time. And, and so my hope and my prayer for our time in Scripture this morning is that each of us would kind of be challenged and stirred up for the areas of our faith where we have become perfectly okay with making empty promises to God. And, and I think that that's going to look differently for a lot of us. But my hope is that through the presence of His Spirit working through His Word, He's going to call each of us forward maybe in a unique way for, for all of us. And that we would have an opportunity to talk to him about, Lord, here's where I've been making those empty promises. Here's where I've been telling you I'm going to hang that picture up. And I'm just not doing it. And my hope, as always, when we come to the, the Lord's word, is that you and I are going to be stirred up to obedience. And that each of us is going to make those decisions to follow him more faithfully. All right, so let's, let's dive in. Let's look at the first son. So in verses 28 through 29, it says this. Uh, there was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, hey, son, go out and work in the vineyard. And the first son, he says, I will not, he answered. But later, he changed his mind. And so when we look at that in verse 29, and, it, and Scripture says that he changed his mind. Right? In the Greek, not that you guys care about the original language, uh, but it's melamonoi. And what that means is not just like I change my mind, like I want to eat something differently at the restaurant, but it's, it's literally a change of heart, or it's where we would get the word repentance from. So these people who are walking away from God saying, no, 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 I'm not going to do what you want. All of a sudden, Jesus is saying, it's not just like, a, all right, I'll, I'll change some of the way. I'll change my mind about some things. But Jesus is saying, these guys have had like a total shift of heart, a change of heart and a change of lifestyle. They've repented now, and they've come in. And so for, before we continue in the text, just kind of to pull the car over to the side, because I know there are many of us who maybe you're not even at a point where, where you acknowledge that you have a faith in Jesus, and, and for some of us, that looks differently. Maybe you were never a part of the church, and maybe you just kind of wandered in here to friends. And maybe you have no background. You've never professed to follow Jesus before, but you're exploring what faith looks like, what it means to put your trust into Jesus. Or maybe for some, I know this one sadly is, is all too true for many, is maybe you did grow up in the church. Maybe you had experience with the church, and maybe, unfortunately, you got wounded by the church, or you got burned by the church. And so because of that, maybe you walked away. 
and, and now that maybe the Lord is stirring something, I don't know why you're here today. I'm glad that you are. I don't know what the Lord's stirring in your heart, what he's working in your heart. But either way, the, my encouragement to you from the text is the same. Is that when we look at the example of the first son, man, these are people who were completely far from God. Right? Like Jesus doesn't just choose these people coincidentally. When he talks about tax collectors and he talks about prostitutes, these are people that in Jewish society, if you could imagine anybody that you would even think might have faith, these people were the furthest from that you could possibly imagine. They were the ones that walked away, had been broken, had been hurt, and had just nothing to do with faith. And then Jesus says, man, they're now coming to a point where they realize something's stirring up inside of them, and they're having this hunger for faith. And so, man, if that's you, I don't know your story. I don't know where you've come from or the hurts and the wounds that you have, but my prayer from the passage this morning for you is that you would just keep seeking. I don't know what that looks like in your life. Maybe you've got a broken faith. Maybe you've got an abandoned faith or you've never had faith at all. And my prayer is that you would look at the words of Jesus in this example and you would take hope. And you would see that, man, he's excited. Right? Think about who Jesus celebrates in the passage. It's not the dudes that have been in the temple their whole lives. It's the people that were far from God and now have put their trust in him. And Jesus celebrates them and he gets excited about that. And so my prayer for you, if, if that resonates with your story, my hope and my prayer is that even if you're not there right now, maybe you're just checking it out, you're exploring faith, but my hope and my prayer is that you would just be stirred up to keep seeking it. My prayer is that you would find new life in Jesus. And I'm glad that you're here because I really do think that this is a community of people who are following after Jesus and I don't just say it because I'm the pastor here, but I genuinely love this community of people. And so my prayer is that you would be, maybe you need to be rehabilitated here, and you need to see a healthy model of what it means to be God's people together. Or, or you never know what that looks like, and this is your first experience in a church. My prayer is that you would just keep seeking it, that you would just keep exploring what Jesus talks about with faith and life and truth. And I pray that, that the room of people around you would be a testimony of that that you would get to see the difference that faith can make. Maybe yours just needs to be brought back. And you need to be healed from all the wounds that you've got. Or maybe you need faith afresh for a first time. My hope, my prayer is that you would hear Jesus' words this morning and be encouraged to keep seeking. That's my hope and my prayer for you. But as we look at the second son, for those of us maybe who have been in the church for a while, I think this is the one that hits us the most. And here's why. The sad thing is, is that for those of us who have been following and been walking with Jesus for a long time, the kind of the, the sad irony is, is that you and I begin to resonate more so in the Gospels with the religious leaders and less with the people who have found Jesus. Because, man, you may have been coming for a while and all of a sudden your faith begins to grow stagnant. Self-righteousness creeps in. Empty promises creep in, and somehow, some way, we find ourselves resembling more and more the religious leaders in the Gospels. And that ought to alarm us. Those are not the people that you want to resonate with. And when we look at the example of the second son, we see that he's the son of the empty promise. He's the person who knows better, he's the person who has been walking faithfully 
who knows what to say and yet stops following through on what they say. And so the challenge for you and I, and from my heart, this is where I resonate. The challenge for you and I is to come to terms with the fact that Jesus cares more about our obedience than our empty promises. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to real quickly look at a couple of verses. And what we're going to do, and, and these verses are hard. Like These are not like make you feel good verses when you go home. And there's a reason for that. And my prayer is that this would serve... Not as like you come to hear the sermon and all of a sudden all your questions are answered and you walk out of here and you're going to answer every commitment that you've made to Jesus. Like that's not how this works. But my prayer is that together as we walk through these couple verses, that these are going to be tools for you. That man, when you go to your connect group this week, i.e. you should be in one, but when you go to your connect group this week, (laughs) seriously, when you go to your groups this week, And when you have your devotions, your time individually with the Lord, man, my prayer is that these verses would be something that you can spend time reflecting on with him. Because these are challenging. These are not verses that you just sit with for 20-something minutes, and you're like, yeah, I'm good to go. I've got it. I know what I need to do. But my hope, my prayer is we're going to talk about these things. You jot them down, and man, you engage with Jesus this week in his word. And the question on the table is this, Lord, where am I giving you empty promises? Search me. Look through my faith. Look through the way that I live out what I say it means to follow you. And in a way that only you can do, man, call me out on the empty promises I'm giving you. And these verses are going to help that conversation. And so let's look at John 14. John 14, verse 23. So John 14 and In John's gospel, this is where he's getting ready to return to the Father. And so as he's getting ready to leave, he's giving his disciples this long bit of teaching about what it's going to be like with him gone. And he's preparing them for that reality. And so in John 14, one of the cool things he's doing is he's saying, hey, I'm going to send the Spirit. Like, you've never known anything like this before, but my Spirit's going to come and it's going to dwell with you and in you and it's going to be a game changer for your life. But one of the questions that Jesus is also answering in John 14 is is kind of an odd one. And the question is this, how will you know that you love him when he's gone? How will you know that you love him? And as Jesus reveals through his answer, it's unlike any other relationship that you have. And here's why. Look at John 14, verse 23. And this is important to Jesus. He says it three times in just a matter of a few verses. And Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will, what? Obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. And and it strikes me as interesting, because that's unlike any other relationship that you and I have. Think about it. Think about any relationship where you profess to love another person. Think about your marriage. What is the basis of why you love your wife or love your fiance or love your girlfriend or boyfriend. Why do you love them? Like, can you imagine getting a Valentine's card that says this? Like, baby, how do you know I love you? And you open it up and says, I do what you tell me. <laughs> like, wives, ladies, you're like, that sounds like a good Valentine's card. <laughs> but they don't make that. You will not find that on the shelves. It's not going to happen. Why? Because that's not the basis of a marriage, and if it is, come talk to me. 
If, you're, if your expectation of why does my spouse love me, well, it's because they do what I tell them. Like, that's not healthy, right? We would look at that and say that's a, probably an unhealthy expectation. Or think of if you have children or grandchildren. Why do they love you? Why do you love them? It's certainly not because they do what they tell you or you tell them. Because if that's the case, then most of my kids don't love me. <laughs> trying to put a jacket on my two-year-old this morning, and she was literally running from me. I just want to put a jacket on you. I don't get it. So Jesus, unlike any other relationship you have, think about it, friendships, uh, romantic relationships, there's no other relationship that you would define love based upon you do what I tell you, at least a relationship that lasts. And then Jesus says, how do you know you love me? You notice he doesn't say, oh, because you, you got the feels for me. Jesus doesn't connect your love for him anywhere with emotion. Oh, it's because Jesus, whenever, I, whenever I'm worshiping, I just get this amazing emotional high. And that, that affirms for me that I love you. That might be true. It might be a part of it. But Jesus is defining our relationship to him in a very unique way. And he says this, if you love me, you will do what I tell you. And, and sad to say for so many of us, Faith and following Jesus is not defined on obedience, but if we actually look at it, it's, it might be built a whole lot more on empty promises where I'm able to disconnect. I love Jesus, but I don't really do what he wants me to do. And for many of us today, that's pretty much how we define faith. I can feel something for Jesus, and, and I love him. And then Jesus is over here saying, no, that's totally fine. I want you to feel that emotion, that, that passion for me, but don't ever think that you can just love me emotionally and not obey me. And that's why when we come to John 14 and you sit with that this week, you're going to have plenty of conversation just over that verse alone of, Lord, are there ways that I just, I want the feels for you, but... I don't actually obey you because Jesus is on a whole different page. If you love me, you will obey my teachings. What does that mean for you and I? And then we look at Isaiah 29. Now, Isaiah 29 is an example in Israel's history when they did just what John 14 warned us not to do. They began to disassociate obedience from actual worship and love and faith. And Isaiah 29, verse 13, one of the charges that God brings against his people is this. The Lord says, these people, they come near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You get that? Man, these people, they come into worship, and they, they say the right things. And if you've been at the church long enough, you know how to speak Christianese. You know it. You're fluent in it. You know how to come into this place and you can say the right things. You know the moments in the worship song, like when the chorus is about to hit and you're like, here it comes, here it comes. My hands are up. You know the prayers to pray. You know the words to say. And Jesus is sitting here and he's, can, he's talking to his people saying, man, you're, you honor me with your lips. You honor me with your promises, but your heart is far from me. 
And now when he says heart, it's not like, and again, not just the emotional, not just the feels, but in biblical language, the heart is not just emotion, but it's also your will. It's the where and the why you make your decisions. And so Jesus is saying this, man, you say one thing and yet your heart, where you make your decisions and why you make your decisions is so far from me. And yet you and I know how to live oblivious to that. Where we think if I just honor him with my lips, if I know what to say and how to act, I know the things that I can commit to, then Jesus is good with it. And he's looking at the worship and he's saying, man, their lips are here, their words are here, and it sounds great, but their heart is so far from me. And just like John 14 says, if you love me, obey my teachings. If you love me, you'll do what I've asked you to do. And yet for so many of us, we've defined faith by empty promises. Yes, Lord, I, I know that you call me to do that, and, I, and I'm going to. I have every intention, Lord. You want me to lead my family? You want me to raise my kids up in faith? I, I promise you I will. I promise you I'm going to get there. You want me to set the standard in my marriage for what it means to be a Christian spouse? I will. I know it. I'm going to get to it. You, you want me to honor you with, with what you've given me, both my, my time and my treasures? I will. I, I know it. I, I'm going to get there. I'll hang that picture up real soon. It'll take me like five minutes. And Jesus doesn't want empty promises. For him, it's black and white. If you love me, you're going to obey my teachings. And the last verse for us is in Matthew 8. And this one kind of hits home for so many of us. Matthew 8, this is where Jesus' ministry is picking, uh, picking up steam. He's getting more popular. And, and people are beginning to follow after him. And so in Matthew 8, verses 18 through 22, two guys come to Jesus. And each of them make professions that promises that they're going to follow him. And, and, and the premise for each of them is the same. So let's tune in. Verse 18, it says, When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, here we go, big promise number one, teacher, man, I'll follow you wherever you go. Right? Anybody ever made promises like that to Jesus? And then Jesus wants to go somewhere that you don't want to go? You're like, did I say that? Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And look what Jesus says. Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In essence, he's saying, are you ready to go to places where you lose every bit of security you have? Like even birds have nests. I'm calling you to go to places where you don't have any of that. Are you sure you want to follow me there? And the one we're going to kind of pick on and hone in on is the second guy who makes the same promise. I'll follow you wherever you go. And then he said in verse 21, but Lord, but first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. It's kind of harsh. So the man comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. Here's my promise, Lord, I'm going to do this. And then what are those two deadly words that he starts the next sentence with? But first... But first, let me, let me take care of this. Let me take care of that. 
And you and I, I mean, for many of us, that's how our prayers sound. Man, Lord, I feel this conviction you've put on my heart to obey you in this direction. And again, I don't know what that looks like for you. That's what you and Jesus need to wrestle with this week. Lord, I feel you calling me to obey you in that direction, and I'm on board. I'll go wherever you go. But first, I got this thing over here. But man, Jesus, I promise, once I've got this done and under control, then we're, then we're there. I'm with you, wherever you want to go. But first, let me get to this. And we look at the example the man gave. Let, man, this is a legit excuse. This isn't like, this doesn't seem fake. Hey, can I go bury my father? Now, this is important because in Jewish customs, he's trying his best to honor his mother and father. He's trying to obey what God has told him. And so we look at that like, man, Jesus, that's really rough, dude. The guy just wants to go and bury his father. Can't you wait for that? And, and Jesus isn't trying to be harsh He's not trying to tell him not to obey the Old Testament, but what he's saying is, hey, in comparison to following me, even the most important commitments has to come second. And unfortunately for many of our faith, if we're real with ourselves, we're all about the promise, and then we always follow it up with, but first. But first I've got this thing to take care of. And this is what's driving me crazy with with Carson, for Taylor and I. Every morning, I take the kids to school, and I know what time I need to be out the door to get to school on time. And so I know as a parent, there's a checklist of things that need to happen for the good of my children to get to school on time. They need to wake up, they need to put on their clothes, they need to eat breakfast, take their vitamins, go do their hair, brush their teeth, pack their backpack, take the lunch that we've made, put it in the backpack, and then stand by the door and wait for me. In a perfect world, that's what happens every single morning. (laughs) And it used to be good. When when Carson was a little younger, he was the most compliant little guy ever because he's a rule follower. It was fantastic as a parent. But now he's getting a little bit older, and now he's starting to develop this little mind of his own where he knows dad's priorities to get out the door. And so I will look at him and say, Carson, go get dressed. I have to spell it out every single morning. We do this every morning. Every day I have to say it. Go get dressed. Then come eat breakfast. Then eat your vitamin. Then do your hair. Brush your teeth. Grab your backpack. Like, same old, same old. He's like, okay, Dad, I got it. And he will look at you and say, I got it. And then I'll go off and make his lunch, and I'll come back in, and nothing's changed, but he's loading Pokemon cards into protective sleeves. And I'm like, boy, what are you doing? And in his mind, in his mind, he needs to have the Pokemon cards ready so when he comes home from school, they're waiting. And so for him, that's a priority. That's not my priority. And Taylor and I are getting so frustrated at this age and stage for him because he will look at me and say, okay, and then go do his Pokemon cards. And I look at that, and it's like a test of my faith. It's too early in the morning for my faith to be this strong at 7.30. And I get tested. And then I look at that, and I'm like, man, how often do I do that same thing with God? He tells me, Ryan, man, here's what, I, here's what I need your priorities to be. Here's where I need you to follow me today. I'm like, yes, Jesus, that sounds so good. 
I'm on board with that plan. I say yes, and then I go off, and I'm saying, but hey, first, I need to get my Pokemon cards lined up. (laughs) And it's trivial, and it's easy to see in a seven-year-old, but man, my faith is the same, just a little bit older. I say, yes, Lord, I acknowledge you're calling me to do this thing, but first, I'm going to handle some of this stuff. And the reality is, and and we're going to engage with Scripture this week in groups, and I pray that you do it devotionally in your own life, the reality is that God cares more about your obedience than your empty promises. Your empty promises don't mean anything to Him. And I don't say that to hurt your feelings. I say it to myself included because it does us no good to call it faith when it's just, yeah, but first. And so my hope and my prayer is this week as you wrestle with these passages, myself included, that, man, that the Lord's going to bring something to your mind and to your heart, and I pray that you would work with him through that. About, Lord, where do I have these empty promises? Where do I need to stop telling you yes but first? And I just need to respond in obedience. My prayer is that we be stirred up by that conviction.